Good morning, everybody. My name is Justin. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. We are getting back into the book of Jeremiah today. Jeremiah. We will be in Jeremiah chapter 2. Open up your canons and your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. So this section of Jeremiah that we're going to be in from now to Christmas is called Oracles, Sermons, and Judgments. This specifically has to do with probably Jeremiah 2 through 25, but we're going to be skipping parts of Jeremiah because we're going to group them into other parts of Jeremiah. So we won't be going straight through the next uh, 24 chapters, but we will spend a considerable amount of time over the next nine weeks in the midst of Jeremiah looking at oracles, sermons, and judgments. Um, I just, as a reminder to everybody, our rhythm, at least when I'm uh, preaching, is going to be that of feeding on the word in three ways. One, we're going to be uh, briefly studying it, so some of the context, the background of what Jeremiah is saying, maybe words, maybe a thread that's a biblical thread that is within uh, the text that links to other prophets and other uh, narrative of the story. Um, We're also going to be feeding on the word through praying the word. So today we're going to take 10 minutes and we're going to get into groups and pray through a certain section of scripture. We're also going to feed on the word through just reading it. Okay. So today Barry and Desiree are going to be reading the section that we're reading, that we're looking at. I just want to encourage everybody. Yes, you could do this on your own. Reading and just hearing the text itself is feeding on the word. Okay. It is feeding on the word. So if you need to, I will probably take my Bible as they're reading it and pace back and forth in the background, just because that's, that keeps me active. If you need to get up and kind of move around or rock or whatever as you're, as you're reading along or if, as you're listening, feel free to do that. However it is with you to make sure you stay uh, attentive and pay attention to the story. It's not just whoever the preacher is or the teacher up here, their words count. That's ridiculous. The actual words from the text count, okay? And so we want to give credence to that. So those three ways of praying, of studying, and of reading the word of God are going to be how we go after Jeremiah's text. So here's the text for today. Um, Everything, I shouldn't say it, the reading is out of ESV. I know that can be kind of, if you have a different translation and then you're trying to follow along. So I'm letting you know it's out of the ESV. Follow along if you want to in your translation. Don't, whatever, whatever keeps you active is great. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to uh, hit up a couple sections to kind of set our mind in the context of what's going on. So Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word towards us. Thank you for your word that came long ago um, and is still alive and active today. Thank you, Jesus, for being the word, for being the perfect translation of the Father's love towards us. Um, Help us to receive uh, you in all things, Jesus. Help us also to enter into the story of Jeremiah and Judah and the exile and the iniquity that was there. Um, Help us to be a people that don't turn a blind eye towards the junk that uh, we participate in culturally or as individuals, but help us to live lives that are glorifying to you and only by the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. We are dependent on you, Jesus. Uh, The table declares that each and every Sunday that we are dependent on you in all things. So help us to see you, um, even if your name is not mentioned within the text. Help us to know the Father's heart more, both his justice and his mercy, both his judgments and his compassion. Help us to know more of the Father. So we pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, first section I wanted to go over is just in this... um, 
part of the text, I just wanted to briefly overview the kind of sections that are within the text that we're reading. So first of all, Jeremiah starts remembering the past, a little section of remembering the past. And he's like, you know what? This relationship between God and God's people was not always, always so strained. There was a lot of strain, but it wasn't always, it's not like it started off and it needed to be this thing where from the beginning it was bad. What he's saying like is remember the devotion of your youth as compared to the way that the body, that the the children of God are now forsaking who God is. And so he starts off with this remembrance that, you know, you were so devoted to me in the younger years. There were these, these things that we really connected to. When you were devoted to me, other nations came in and what happened was that they were destroyed. But now we see that nations are coming in, Assyria and Babylon, and rather than them attacking and them then being thwarted, what are we seeing? We're seeing Assyria and Babylon come against the nation of God and actually winning, that these outside foreign places are now winning against God's people. Why is that? So then we get into the next section of text, which is typically labeled as a prophetic lawsuit that in the Hebrew language, there's a lot of of lawyerisms, and Barry's one of the readers today on purpose. Um, Barry's a lawyer, for those who didn't know, he was a lawyer. Um, And so there's this um, prophetic lawsuit that God is is kind of rolling out. Like, I wish it didn't have to come to this, but now I'm just going to have to be bluntly honest in what is going on here. And so there's this prophetic lawsuit that comes out. And in the midst of this, there's this idea that, um, you know, Jack, Jack Nicholas... Jack Nicholson? Is one a golfer and one an actor? Who's the actor? Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. Is that, was that his line? Yes. I couldn't tell if it was him or uh, who's the other guy in that? Tom Cruise. I thought it was Tom Cruise at first. But there's this idea of you can't even handle the truth. And so then there's this big section where Jeremiah goes through um, these perverted identities which distort the reality and he uses this poetic language over and over again. Because they're not, in just plain language, not getting it. They're not getting it. And so there's these five sayings and these five pictures, these five metaphors that you're going to hear as Desiree and Barry speak the text. And what we're saying, when I say we, I mean the people of God in this text, which we don't want to identify with, but we're identifying with, is that I will not serve, that even though that God brought us out in an exodus, even though God rescued us from these places, he rescued us and yet we will not worship him. We will not serve him. We decided, thanks, I'm out of here. There's this other saying that I am not unclean, that I have done nothing wrong. And sometimes that's true, where there's this guilt and the shame that is dumped upon us when other people say we have done something wrong. But this is God saying stuff now. And we're saying, you know, I'm not unclean. I don't go and worship other gods. I don't go worship other idols. And God's like, really? It is hopeless. Okay, so maybe I do worship other idols, but I've given myself over to them for so long that how am I going to get out of that? So it's even a hopeless situation for me to even try to remove myself or for me to try to change or for my heart to turn towards you in reality. So I'm just going to give up on those things. And besides, idols saved us. They gave us life. This stone is my father. This tree is my mother. I worship them and they give me life and prosperity because I can burn them and they can protect me. And then when they can't protect, when they can't fulfill what idols can never do, we then cry out to God, the people of God cry out to God saying, why haven't you saved us? So we completely remove ourselves from the relationship. And then we get mad at God. 
when we have broken covenant promises, when we have spit in his face, and then these other nations are coming against us, these other forces are coming against us, and God is letting them wreck us. And we're like, why, don't, why aren't you saving me? I knew this was going to happen, God. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I didn't worship you in the first place, because you weren't going to save me, that you weren't going to rescue me. And all these things are false. They're false identities. They're false presumptions. But they're things that are deeply into the heart of the people. And so Jeremiah also uses these five uh, pictures, these five metaphors, vine, camel, a donkey, a thief, and a lover. And the lover language is going to come through really strong in certain sections of the text. This is what uh, 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 Walter Brueggemann says. He's an Old Testament prophet, or sorry, prophet, professor. There's a difference between those two things. The poetry is an assault on Judah's imagination, requiring Judah to see its actual situation differently, to understand the cause of that situation and its inevitable outcome. The effect of the poetry is to show that the attempt of God's people to love outside a relationship with Yahweh, again, Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament. When we say Father, we're saying Yahweh. Um, outside of relationship with Yahweh and to find other life support systems is sure to fail and end in exile. The destruction has not happened for reasons of destiny, but for reasons of Judah's choice. Judah refused to be Yahweh's covenant partner, thinking autonomy, a law unto itself, was preferable. And such a refusal may seem like freedom, but in fact, it ends in death. And so part of the poetry and the beauty, not only in this chapter, but all throughout Jeremiah, when it's not the narrative, is that Jeremiah, God, through Jeremiah, is trying to awaken the people with the poetry and the language that is being used. Be like, wake up. You're seeing this, but you're not seeing this at all. So he uses these different, these different uh, pictures. We go from there into Yahweh's defense and to Judah's sentencing. Basically, Yahweh, um, God, says that you could blame me, except you can't blame me. Look at my record. Look how I have loved you. Look at my everlasting love for you, my steadfast love that has come over and over and over again. Look at this. I, you might be accusational towards me, Judah, God's people, but yet here's the record. Here's the record that it is on trial, that there is nothing that I have done that was not in loving kindness in both justice and mercy towards you. Relationship with God is not a guaranteed state, but a relationship that depends on responsiveness. When Yahweh is rejected, covenantal values disintegrate and life becomes the frank pursuit of self-securing. I'm glad those people had that problem and we don't have that problem of self-securing anymore, right? I didn't struggle with that at all this week. Yeah, I have no fault of my own is what we're saying and yet Yahweh is the one that is, actually has the right to say that. And then the final section is the covenant betrayal and the land polluted, which gets into the idea of the lover, uh, spouses, husband and wife being unfaithful to one another, one being unfaithful to the other, and how it not only affects the covenant partners, but it also affects the land. So any of us here that have either personally gone through divorce or have family members that have gone through divorce or everybody here has been touched by divorce in some level, we know that it just isn't between those two people, right? That when that separation is happening, there is stuff all around that is, is hurt, you know? And even if it's um, from um, our human standpoint, a better situation, so to speak, that it still affects others. It still affects the land. So in this, in this picture of uh, Jerusalem as a lover of 
Yahweh and Jerusalem being unfaithful in those spots, it's not just that it affects God, but it actually affects everybody around them too. It affects the land. It pollutes the land. And that's not okay because God is not only a God that's about um, the people that are in his covenant, but he's about a God that wants all people, all nations, like we sang earlier, like all nations to come to him. And yet what is that saying when that covenant is broken and these other nations are looking in on Judah being like, <laughs> we've, we've never even seen anything like this, that you gave up on your God, you gave up on your lover. We don't even do that and we worship the false gods. And so there's kind of this like kind of jab that is there. So those are the sections. A couple words that you might not know what's going on with these words. I just wanted to point out uh, were these uh, t- three sets of two words. So Cyprus and Kedar, they were from the west to the east. This is what's called a Marism. So when he uses it in the text, what he's saying is that from all the way over to the east and to all the way over to the west, nothing like this has been seen before. So it's just geographical locations. Okay, it's not in this instance. It's not saying there's some kind of theological reason that Jeremiah is using that, and there's some kind of theological reason that Jeremiah is using that. What they're saying, what he's saying is that from as far east and as far west, we have not seen anything like this before, where a people have uh, turned their backs on their local God. And again, we have the true God, and we're turning our backs on him. Judah was doing that. Uh, Memphis and, uh, excuse, excuse my pronunciation here, Tapanes, these were Egyptian cities, and Jeremiah used these as, uses these ironically. Why? Because eventually, Judah, God's people, are going to find refuge, if they haven't partially already, in Egypt. Which is ironic. Because one, they come out of slavery from Egypt, and now they want to make this covenant with Egypt. Hey, if we attach ourselves to you, you know, maybe you can bring a couple gods in, we can have some uh, consumer trading here, and all of that. Once that gets in here, then you can protect us from what's going to happen with Assyria and Babylon to the north. Except Jeremiah uses this text is that the very people that you are looking to for support, for care, are going to end up battering you. So you're going to go to these places in Egypt, and yet you're going to become slaves. You're looking for security in Egypt, and what's going to happen is that you're going to find slavery again in Egypt. And so there's this ironic use that Jeremiah is using. And then Egypt and Assyria, uh, which I already mentioned, religious and political alliances will only cause greater suffering. Rebellion towards those powers will do the same. Repentance is what will bring wholeness. We can't set up these false walls to protect us from things. We can't set up these things that we're, we will partner with this um, nation and then they will protect us from this other nation. Not in God's kingdom. Not, that's not what Judah was being called to. And in the midst of trusting in those entities, trusting in political alliances, trusting in consumer alliances, what ends up happening is the same thing that's always going to happen, is that Judah is going to fall because their hearts and their minds and their actions are not turned towards the one true God. So that was the section overview of um, the section we will be reading. Barry? Desiree? Can you make sure the mics are on? So again, let's get into a posture of reading or hearing, however you need to get into that. If this, again, Cornerstone, this is part like uh, we're worshiping God and feeding on the word, but we're also, this is almost like a discipline, kind of, you know what I mean? To be able to sit and listen to a chapter of the Bible seems like a lot. It's not. And so let us hear the story with some of those basic contextual things and listen to the heart and to the poetry 
and also to what God is saying in the midst. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, and the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the living fountain, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke. And burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the bales? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing in the wind. 
who can restrain her lust. None who seek her need weary themselves. In her monthly they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, It is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love so that even a wicked woman you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat, waiting, lovers, awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called me my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. So we usually say the word of the Lord and then thanks be to God. kind of feels weird to say thanks be to God after we read that, right? However... The Lord always has justice and mercy hand in hand. And so that was the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's one of those things where um, uh, Keith um, this week was talking about like the way we say certain things. And uh, good job, both of you, at everything. How do we hear that, though? Like, say, um, in one of the, the portions of Scripture where it talks about you have turned your back to me. 
and not your face to me. Do we hear it? You have turned your back to me and not your face to me. Do we hear it so powerfully accusationally? Do we hear it um, as God's heart breaking? You have turned your back on me and have not turned your face to me. And that's not to say God doesn't get angry, doesn't say that God has ha- doesn't have wrath, but both God's justice and his mercy go hand in hand. So I just want to encourage you as you read it, as you hear it yourselves, that kind of thing, just remember that God's justice and God's mercy goes hand in hand. So with that, we're going to get into some prayer praying at the moment. This is going to be the scripture passage that we're going to pray through. What I'm going to ask everybody here is to get into groups of two, three, or four. Try not to be more than four, please. If you are new here to Cornerstone, welcome. Um, Also, don't feel like you have to pray in your group. Just sit, be quiet, be with the people that you're with. This isn't a show. This isn't trying to pray for the sake of praying. Uh, What we want to do is get into groups, and then we're going to read this passage a couple times. I would suggest that in your heart, in your mind, ask God, God, what do you say about this? How can I pray about this stuff? How would you have me pray for a couple minutes? Um, And then we will, um, in our groups, just pray for five minutes together. So let's first get into groups so we can get into a posture of prayer. So go ahead and and, uh, link up however you want to do that. Okay, so I'm going, Joy is going to read this passage once. I'm going to read the passage once, and then we're going to just sit for a minute in the quietness of your heart. Ask God how he would have you pray. What is brought to mind in this? Who can you pray for? How can you pray for the church in general? Um, is there stuff where you can link to somebody's story and actually somehow um, connect with it and um, pray for them in the midst of it? Is there some personal stuff that you just want to say, lead me, guide me in these things, God, because I'm tempted to go astray everywhere. And again, you're in a group, so this isn't just about you and your group. Um, but ask the Lord what he would, how he would have you talk to him about it. So Joy's going to read it once, and then I'll read it once, then we'll be quiet, and I'll get us into prayer after a minute. And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possession I had promised you. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me. The rulers turned against me, and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possession I had promised you. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me. The rulers turned against me, and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. So let's take a moment and just be quiet um, and, and pray silently, and then I'll, Joy will guide us. Um, she will uh, open us up with prayer, and then once she's done praying, feel free to pray in your groups. Father, in view of your great mercy... We come together this morning in this place for such a time as this. All across our city, all across our region, your bride comes together to behold, to worship, 
to gaze on you, to bless you. We come as one church, capital C. We come as one bride. We come as your children. Not because we all agree on every interpretation and every crossing of the T and dotting of the I, but because you have declared us to be one. Because you have called us your people. We come boldly before your throne. But our boldness comes not from our own rightness. Not because we can look around and hold ourselves above our brothers and sisters. Our boldness is firmly planted in your mercy. Lord, have mercy. We confess that we regularly look for answers elsewhere. We often choose our own standard of measurement instead of your standard, which is your great mercy. As your bride together in this region, we pray for our leaders, our pastors, our teachers, our elders, all of those who hold governing titles within your local body. God, protect them. Protect them, protect us from giving inappropriate value to this world's methods of organization and establishment. Your church is established and organized by the saving work of your son, Jesus. All things, including the leaders of our local church, come under the authority of Christ Jesus. In your kingdom, it's not the smartest and the strongest who are great. It is the one who serves, the one who is fully aware of her dependence on you. God, we say together today that your church in southeastern Pennsylvania will not rest on her own merits, but will loudly declare that any merit she has is because of your great mercy. We thank you, Father, that we can come before you boldly with our sin in full view We will not be ashamed of the places we fall short because you are well aware. You see us so clearly. You know we are but dust. And Father, you see us in mercy. Your mercy is always pervading your view of us. Help us to see you, hear you, know you in view of your mercy. Help us to see ourselves in view of your mercy. God, help us to see each other in view of your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that your anger lasts but a moment. We thank you, Lord, that your favor lasts a lifetime. We thank you, Lord, that your faithful love endures forever. Would you say that together with me? Your faithful love endures forever. Say it again. Your faithful love endures forever. One more time. Your faithful love endures forever. Let's continue in this spirit of prayer as we pray in our groups. Thanks, everybody, for engaging that. That will be a more common thing here at Cornerstone Sunday mornings. Don't leave because of that. There is grace to just sit and be with people. 
So the one theological thread I wanted to trace just briefly is the idea of the vine. And uh, certain YWAMers might remember this when I came to YWAM to do communion. Um, so we, we have in, in Jeremiah this idea, uh, chapter 2. I'll just read it. Verse uh, 20, For long ago I broke you, broke your yoke and burst your bonds, set you free. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and, uh, and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Verse 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. Okay? So there's this, these four words, um, I'm not saying there's not other words, but four main words um, that you can see in the prophets that is used about Israel, God's people, as a vine. So here it's using the, the, the word choice, that Israel was planted, Judah was planted, God's people were planted as a choice vine of holy, pure seed. And what it's saying in the midst of that is that God didn't put us, create us, in the midst of any kind of uh, sin or iniquity. The soil, the nutrients, everything was good when he started us, if that makes sense. When, when, um, so how can we say this another way? Uh, the, the, the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3, right? The Bible starts in Genesis 1. God created everything, and it was what? It was good. It was good. It's not that um, in other um, creation stories from other religions, this, there's this idea that the gods uh, or the god actually had some kind of beef with his brother or his sister and everything was born out of chaos, whereas how uh, uh, Israel uh, tells the story is that, no, there was chaos and then God was there and he brought order to the chaos and he made everything good, that everything was good. And so as we are planted as a church, as we are planted as people of God, as individuals and corporately, we're not, um, and again, I'm not saying like individually, but we're not um, of some kind of degenerate thing to start off of. That God's people back in Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation was good. Yes, sin has messed that up. But what Jeremiah is using this language here for is to say that, again, you can't blame God for this. He's trying to make sure that the people are actually seeing that this is a choice that you have made, that this stuff is happening. Rather than, well, why didn't God do this or God do that? And all throughout it, it's this is, I've, this is holy, pure seed. The stock is good. The soil is good. I'm watering I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, giving nutrients and everything else, and yet stuff happens. And we're n- made not only to be choice, but also to be noble. So in Ezekiel 15, it talks about the vine. And it says in the midst of this vine, and it's bigger than this, but the one verse that talks about talks about it as a noble vine, a splendid vine, a beautiful uh, vine, a, even a widening vine, meaning that it is supposed to grow and it is supposed, supposed to stretch out because the covenant that God made with Abraham way back when was that he would be blessed for himself, for in and of himself. No, he was to be blessed for others to be blessed that I am going to put my special seal on you and bless you so that other nations through you will glorify in me and those people will be blessed. And so we're called to be a noble vine. And we have the choice starting, Genesis 1 and 2, to do that, to widen healthily. Not, I don't mean like get big and get crazy, which is the next word that's going to come up. But then we also see these other words. So in Jeremiah, again, this idea of the vine becoming wild. 
the idea of this vine becoming strange, the idea of this vine becoming foreign, meaning that God doesn't know this vine anymore because it's become so unlike the thing that it was meant to be. Yes, we're, we're uh, chosen, we're a choice vine, and we're called to spread out in the love of God and the mercies of God and the truth of God. We're to be noble and splendid and beautiful, and yet we have become this wild vine. Judah became this wild vine. It started taking its source from different rivers. It started uh, getting its nutrients from different soil. And eventually what happens in, uh, later in Ezekiel 15, or sorry, Ezekiel 7, Ezekiel 15, is that it becomes a useless vine. And so the prophet Ezekiel uses this language to talk about um, the uselessness now of Judah to be what it's meant to be. And he even uses this, these, this image of, you know, a bunch of sticks or a bunch of vine uh, branches and stuff taken out. These are from my house uh, a couple weeks ago, and I'm glad I saved them because they use as a good illustration today. And so there was three exiles um, with uh, Babylon. So there was one exile. 30 years later, there was another exile. 40 years later, there was the third exile. And he even says that, this is Judah. Each of the ends were burned up, you know, and they're not useful for anything. And eventually the third wave of the exile, which is the, the actual destruction of the land and of Jerusalem is going to come and the whole thing is going to be burnt. And this is useful for nothing except for fire. That the thing that it was created to be, to have beautiful uh, fruit or flowers or whatever come out of it, is no longer doing that. It was meant to be this choice, noble vine. But then it became wild. It spread itself too thin. It intertwined with other things of its own choice, of its own accord. And eventually it became useless. And what good is a bundle of sticks, a bundle of vines that are dried up? What good are they except for fire? And so this is kind of traced, this is like a, a theological thing that goes through the, the, um, the prophets. This really kind of sad thing that there is this goodness, and yet this is what we've come to. And of course, um, some parallel. So to, to ask you right now, um, it doesn't exactly parallel, but to bring this home a little bit more, um, I think it would be good for us to ask ourselves as the church and then also as family units, as individuals, whatever, like what are the things that we do that we intertwine ourselves with or that we spread ourselves too thin that we actually don't produce fruit anymore? Like the American culture is one of busyness and the church isn't necessarily um, any different than that. There's the question of what are we actually engaged in? What are we putting our lives into? And why are we putting our lives into those things? Is it because we have some kind of security issue that we need to do something that is sexy and sensational all the time? And if we're not doing that, um, we're not doing anything of worth? Or do we have issues of jealousy as the church that we see these other organizations that aren't the church and we see how they're prospering and we're seeing how they're growing and stuff like that. And they're even doing good things. So let's model ourselves after those things. And yet is the church supposed to be modeled after those external things? Or has God called us to a different kind of being, a different kind of living and who he is? Are there voices in your life that are telling you to spread yourself too thin? that if you don't do this, then you're of no value. If you have to say no to this now, 
well, then there's not going to be a time for you to do it in the future. This would have been a very um, hard visual for the people of Israel in exile to see, this idea of the vine, knowing that they were meant to be um, this choice vine, and yet they're basically being thrown away because of the choices that they have made. And so when Jesus in John 15 actually comes to his disciples and he uses the imagery of being the true vine, like it resonates a lot more with them than maybe like we would get right away, you know? Sure, the exile is technically over by the time Jesus gets there, but not really. They're under Roman occupation. They're in their homeland, but they're not really ruling in their homeland. They're looking for a Messiah still. They're looking for somebody to come in, uh, uh, thwart their enemies and all of this other stuff. And Jesus shows up and he does it. Um, he's a Messiah that is not Messiah stock by everybody else's uh, thought. That he comes in a completely different way. But what does he say? He says, I am the true vine. And so where Israel failed, where Judah failed, where the people of God failed by choice, that they did not turn, they did not want to deal with their shame, even though God was merciful, sent prophet after prophet after prophet, just turn to me, I want to be with you, I want you to be in wholeness. Jesus comes and says that I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, and that you will be fruitful, how? As my disciple, by abiding in me, by staying connected and dependent on me. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. New Testament, this is Jesus speaking. He takes away, and my Father, sorry, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, he says to the disciples, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So abide in me, remain in me, be dependent on me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. So he's even picking up of the language of the Old Testament still. Like, there's still this thing. You need to stay connected, repent, stay connected to God one way or another. It's just that this grace and this truth and the sacrifice that Jesus came with in his life, death, and resurrection was like an incredible, like, it's no prophet could have done that. You know what I mean? It took the Son of God, it took God himself to come and do the thing that Jesus came and did. And so it re-shows to such a degree that we don't even understand the love of the Father and the willingness of trying to reconcile this stuff. Not dismissing sin, not saying that's okay that you do that, but by showing the love that God has for us in, in very tangible, in the flesh ways and showing the power of God to deal with sin and death by raising him from the dead. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Definite reference to Old Testament prophets there. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple.
So today, as we end on Jeremiah, we also turn our eyes towards Jesus and to the table that he has provided. And the specific thing I want you to think about, to worship in, is the fact that he is the true vine. That he is not a useless vine. He is not um, this wild vine. He is the true vine. He is the genuine vine. And it's only by us continuing to stay connected as the church to that table, which represents the source. So in actuality, staying connected to Jesus Christ himself that we will be fruitful. Will we be pruned? Will we feel those, those clippers there? Yeah. Yeah, great. But we also have this life flowing, flowing through us. And so today, as you go to the communion table, Jim and Cindy uh, will be serving communion. I'd like you to step over the dead branches that are on either side of the communion table. Excuse me, ladies, for your if you have dresses or stuff like that. Just be careful of you don't get a thorn or something like that remembering the idea of the vine, remembering the idea that you and I, the church, need to stay connected to the true vine. And it is only by the life that flows through him that we will have life, both now and to come. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Jesus, that you are, I am the true vine. I am, you're expressing your divinity there and you're likening it to the true vine. God, we can be connected to you um, and things can seem all right, like we're still physically connected and yet we can be dead on the inside. So I pray that you would take those things that would make us look alive on the outside and yet we're not actually, there's some kind of blockage there that we have chosen. And I pray that you would remove the exterior stuff in our lives so that we can actually see what is going on. So that's not like, and it's not a surprise, but so that's not like, oh, I didn't know that. Like, we, we do know it, God. Would you enliven our eyes to see that by the grace of Christ? Jesus, we come to this table in worship and in thanksgiving for what you have done. And we confess that we need you, we need you, we need you. We act like enemies of God all the time. And yet through your love and your sacrifice, you have called us to be sons and daughters who are with their father who are with their Lord, who are with their Savior, even in the midst of times that feel like exile, a world that goes crazy most of the times, um, choices that we make that are wrong, choices that other people that make that hurt us, all of that. But we want you to be glorified. And by us staying connected to you, Jesus, God is glorified with the fruit. And we want you to be glorified, God. Come to this table today and we remember that you are the true vine. Speak to us, enliven us. Yeah, protect us from the fires that we would choose. We pray this in your name. Amen.